Hi, welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, and I'm with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey, Don, how's it going? Pretty good, yourself? Pretty good, pretty good. Awesome. So this is a, a, a interesting time in our, in our little series. We've come to our ultimate episode of our 1965 to 1975 uh movies that and films that we uh we really wanted to see and talk about and so we are on our final uh episode of this little mini series and we are going to introduce our final two films and i'm going to let don start off as usual go ahead don thanks man um so the film i, I selected is uh it's called barry linden and uh it's by stanley kubrick um, it's the film that he uh, made following uh, Clockwork Orange, and then afterwards he made The Shining. And I would say those films are much more uh, popular or, you know, uh, certainly were more successful commercially uh, when they were released. Um, but Barry Lyndon uh, is, uh, now they look back, and, and it did actually quite well. Um, you know, I think it made 20 million or something. The budget was about 10. So it wasn't like it was a, <coughs> a commercially, as, <coughs> excuse me, unsuccessful film, but it certainly doesn't have the, um, you know, the cachet that other Kubrick, you know, it's not as big as 2001 or uh, other films he did, you know. Uh, not quite as high profile. Not as high profile. Although, uh, you know, as I said at the time, uh, it, it, you know, when I, so talking about memories, I remember very clearly going to see this film and, you know, it was, I, I saw it was a very adult film, you know, it's very, it's, it's a very, you know, there's no chases or anything like that. It's a period piece. Uh, it stars Ryan O'Neill. So he was quite well-known at the time. Um, he was the one well-known actor in it. And it's just a period piece about a guy named Barry Lyndon who uh, goes from being, you know, basically a country boy in Ireland and ends up, you know, almost a, you know, a, a a duke or a member of a royal family or with money estate and it's just we follow his journey and so it's sort of a rags to riches story and uh but th there's a really odd tone to it so we the whole thing is narrated by this kind of mean narrator that that seems to be he seems to like barry linden but then he he makes these remarks all the time that kind of mocks barry and he's always messing up and making mistakes and he he puts him down a lot and he kind of makes fun of various choices in his life. So it's the narrator, it, it comes across like almost like a Charles Dickens, Jane Eyre kind of story. And it well, seems- Is the author, uh, was it William Thackeray? He, yeah, it's he based had on that kind of style of, uh, uh, he was in that kind of same area, you know, with the, um, the same kind of uh, Dickens kind of vibe to him. Yeah, very much so. And as I said, a classical uh, piece, it's all uh, beautiful costumes. I mean, uh, in terms of the Oscars, it was it won four Oscars. They're basically all technical awards. Um, one was costumes. Uh, the other one was what's probably the most remarkable about Barry Lyndon is the, uh, the technical side is the, is the, uh, the camera. Uh, so they, they found a camera uh, that was actually a, a lens that was used uh, for the Apollo missions and, and the, why they liked it so much is it was really, it could capture uh, images without artificial light. And so the, uh, the, the scenes that ever, there's a couple of types of scenes everyone talks about this film. The, the main one is the candlelit scenes. So there's quite a few uh, scenes at night and there's like, there's lots of sort of gambling scenes and these sort of parlors. 
and a lot of evening shots and there's candelabras and candles everywhere. So there's this really warm light. And that's actually the light that lit the, the scenes. There's no artificial light. And so there was quite a bit of hype about this. People were saying how technically remarkable it was. Uh, and it is really beautiful. It, uh, Cooper commented he wanted to portray an era that was before, you know, being uh, in the, the days of electricity. And he wanted to see what, you know, how people kind of huddled. He talked about people huddling around the light, the candles, et cetera. And he wanted that same feeling. I think you really captured that very well. I mean, uh, you know, you just kind of got that dark, you know, like the the difference between the the, the day scenes at the, that time and living in the daylight of that time, and then the darkness of those interior scenes. You know, it's just it's it was very well done in the sense that you got the authenticity of the night experience pre electricity. Uh, I thought that was captured very well. And you know, you can't go wrong when you use space technology, Don. And that's that's the great thing. When you got NASA yeah. on your side, your movie's yeah. going to do well technically because you know yeah. it's NASA and you're using space technology. So yeah. you can't go wrong with that stuff. And I yeah. another thing that you said that I I wanted to comment on was you you mentioned that he, they won the Oscar for the costuming. I actually read that uh, you know he went around. He wasn't satisfied with just replicating those those outfits. He actually went to museums and and actually borrowed the, the original clothing from that time that was in some of these museums and had his experts wear it. So, I mean, he, yeah. and you know, you always hear these stories of Kubrick getting overzealous about really diving deep into his movies. And this is a perfect example of how he talked, you know, and he's not English, he's an American. And he talked to English and giving him the, the actual museum quality pieces of, of of dress from that day and letting his extras wear it. I don't know if they destroyed it or what happened to it, but I mean, that's a real risk because any museum would be very fearful of, of uh, the costumes being damaged, you know? Yeah. Well, as you said, I mean, like he is a, a man known for his details and talk about space technology, you know, people obviously talk about his, uh, you know, the remarkable sets and, and, and cameras that he used in 2001. Um, and so that's this, he won the Oscar that year for special effects. Um, and it, it, it wasn't, you know, he didn't, there was no CGI at the time. And he just figured out ways to mimic what it would be like in space. And he did these remarkable uh, you know, use of camera to trick us to think that there was uh, uh, no gravity. And then following it, as I mentioned, Shining was a film made afterwards. That film is known for his use of Steadicam which is just a camera that no one, and we, we see it all the time now. It's, it's, a, it's a completely accepted norm in the industry, but he, he was one of the first people to use it. And there's these, the long shots of the boy on the, uh, on the tricycle and they're running through the, all the hallways. And those are all steady cam shots. And, it, and people say, okay, it's all technical, but it, Kubrick does it for a reason. And that one, it was to create this sort of ongoing tension of what, you know, what, who's gonna come out of a door, the twins and all these kinds of things. And in this film, as you said, it's like this feeling of, what it was like people huddled around uh, a candlelight and they, they didn't they couldn't spread in the room because if you're, then you'd suddenly be in the dark and he really wanted to have that authentic feeling and he, he did very well with that. And apparently for the, the technical crew it was hellish because every time they had to redo a take they had to put in all new candles because to keep yeah. the uh, you know to keep the authenticity so they had to reload all the candles and all the candelabras every yeah. single every take so it was yeah. you know i guess it was quite uh technically challenging to, to kind of remake that authenticity yeah and then also the the exteriors that they're, they're all 
the design on the, of this of you know a 19th century painter named William Hogarth, and he basically recreated these absolutely you know beautifully structured images. And we either have a slow zoom in or a slow zoom out. And normally we would have like you know establishing shot of something, and then we have you know going back and forth. One person talks, another person talks. But he he just wanted to have the feeling of what it was like to kind of live in a painting, and he would either, as I said, slowly come in and slow it, and, and often to end up just on a two shot of two people, but we would just, he defied the norms of the industry. And it was really technically challenging because they shot most of it in, in all these manor houses and castles in Ireland. And it's Ireland they had a lot of terrible weather and they had many days delayed because it was raining and he, they would wait for the, the weather to have a, these beautiful shots. So there was a lot of just downtime of waiting to uh, make the shots happen. And you know that, and as you talk about that zoom, when you think of Kubrick, that's a style that he has adopted as kind of one of his custom ideas of how he uses his cameras. And so, you know, you, I, as I saw those first zooms, I was like, oh, that, that's that's a Kubrick thing, you know. So yeah. you, I've seen that in some of his other pieces. Yeah, he really, you know, he's got a vision. Uh, you know, he's he was a photographer as a his beginning of his career and you know in his one of his first films that he's known for is the killers he had a dop a cinematographer that he would tell him exactly how he wanted a shot done with exactly this kind of lens and the dop was like and kubrick was 20 something at the time and he was like whatever and he would do it his own way and kubrick knew immediately when he was shooting it not the way he said it to be shot and he would tell him to redo it and you know, obviously it made him demanding to work for, but as you said, we know what a Kubrick film looks like because he's very specific in how things are framed and shot and the, and the type of uh, shots he uses. Um, the other thing I just wanted to note about this film is that it's interesting because he was actually gonna make a, a biopic film of Napoleon. That was his intention for this film. And he'd done all the research and, you know, he really wanted to sort of, you know, you know, establish who Napoleon was and have a, you know, a biopic pic a picture on him. But the year before, um, a film named Waterloo was made and lots of people refer to Waterloo. It's, it's you know, it's uh, very much like uh, uh, other classic films like Ishtar and uh, the water one, Waterworld. And they're, they're the, so when people refer to Waterloo, it's a reference to a hugely budgeted film that totally uh, bombed. Um, and that was the film about the Battle of Waterloo. And they had uh, in that film fifteen thousand uh, dressed extras, like they, they never had met. And, and now, of course, we have CGS. No one considered doing such things before. And you know, as you said, Kubrick would have similar budget demands. And they, the, the studio, pulled it and said, "We're not, we're not doing anything about Napoleon or anything related to that because the audience, the it's bad, bad audience right now." So. And then he said, okay, and he, he chose something. It's not exactly the same period of time. It's the Seven Years' War, which is a similar period of time. It's when England and France were sort of vying for, you know, European or world supremacy. And we see all the wars because it's pretty funny. The Prussians, the French and the England are all kind of back and forth. And he, he, he certainly does not make uh, battle, uh, you know, glorious. It makes it look kind of miserable and awful and kind of drudgery. Um, and that's what he mimics. It's just what it's like to be in these wars and of course our character Barry Lyndon he fights for the English and then he he leaves he finds a nice woman in the middle of nowhere and he stays with her for a while then he deserts and he ends up being with the Prussians and and then, a, then he ends up being trying to be a count so he sort of just follows him through the war and um he's not certainly not loyal to anything except for himself yeah no you you definitely see that the um 
at the beginning he he tries you know at the early part of his life you know he's he you know he has this strong love for his cousin yeah and, uh you know you see this you know i'm going to resolve this in the in a gentlemanly way and then his you know his whole family tricks him by giving him a, a, a dueling pistol that isn't loaded correctly and so he doesn't kill the guy that he challenges for his cousin's love and uh and then they ship him off as quickly as possible and then you know and so you're seeing like this this uh influence on him that you know there's a kind of a web of deceit that he kind of builds into his character and and you know you you're constantly seeing that he realizes to be successful at this time you've got to be just a total scumbag to to really make it unless you're royalty you know and then you you do everything you can to get into royalty and then you know you 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 think you got the easy life but then in reality you know more money more problems right and you, yeah. and you see that happening and his whole you know his life so it's interesting because you know the story uh as i reflect on it you know there's a the the, the technical parts of the movie the the some of the storyline is is you know well woven and interest but i found the actual editing of this movie to be just horrifically overly overly just every shot it was just i i just you know it was not a con, it was not a concisely edited movie it was you know it's three hours long and man there are some scenes where they're just do, taking a reaction shot that is a three to five second reaction shot and they're they're dragging it out for like 20 seconds and it's and it's not one time it goes back and they do you know there's a back and forth and then the second reaction shots is, and it was just it, you know it 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 I just felt like it was just a little ponderous in 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 its flow. It could have probably chopped down a, a good, I don't know, twenty percent less because man, that really impacted my viewing. I I saw that it's it's well re reviewed, but you know, in the attention span of of modern day, I, I don't you know, people just could not. It's hard to watch the 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 whole thing in one sitting. Well, the thing is, you know, uh, I, I agree definitely with a modern day uh, audience. It's definitely the kind of film you want to watch on your computer. Um, the last time I saw it, they showed it at the King's Theater in Brooklyn. Um, you know, and it holds about six, seven thousand with a live orchestra. And when you when you see it like that, it's like what you're doing is you're basically watching like a beautiful classical painting right. yeah. sort of just be shown. And it's as you say, these ponderous, it's definitely ponderous. You're every... <laughs> longs and you, he wants you to sort of just be absorbed and and you know just t taken over by the story which is so funny because it's like this beautiful classically told story but Barry Lyndon is just such a terrible hero he's he's such a ne'er-do-well that never you know he he has success and doesn't have success in the end but he and even when he finds success he's a jerk about it I mean yeah. he, he finds this woman to you know enter the gentry and and then he just abuses her. He just wants oh, yeah. to be in. I mean, he, she was a tool. She's just a tool. tool yeah. yeah. Like a stepping so, stone, you know? Yeah. It's definitely a very slow um, film that uh, requires attention. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and the narration is, a, is its own character. And then also the music is its own character. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Kubrick really invested in, in, in the music. The way that he researched his music was... Uh, you know, it was it was almost scientific in his dedication to what, you know, what uh, version of what classical music to play in every single section. Yeah. I mean, whoever did his sound 
design must have uh you know it would have been the same as like his director of photography no do this yeah. i want this well, exact thing you know yeah. it would have been it also won the oscar for best sound so yeah I mean, you know he, he's very thoughtful and so it's all that harpsichord stuff yeah. yeah all kind i mean it was it was definitely and and you know one of the scenes that i i saw that uh i had read about um that you know they the duel in the barn where oh, yeah. where the main character gets shot in the leg the that it's not an overly complicated scene i mean it's you know it's, it's you know done in one place from several different angles yes but i read that it took 42 days to to in post production to edit that cuz oh. he wanted it just the, the certain way you know and so you know the the whole shooting i think was 300 days on this film it was oh yeah it was it's very, very long you know, <laughs> you know so kubrick man i mean he was just you know, he must, he, he must add some undiagnosed OCD or something. I'm thinking. You know? Oh yeah, definitely. Good. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of Kubrick, like I've seen all his films, uh, you know, many, many people have seen lots of them. Um, this is definitely one of my top two films. I just, I've seen it many times and I could see it many times more. Well, I'm glad I did see it. You know, this isn't a film I had seen or even heard of, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, when I think of Kubrick, this is not in the catalog no. of, of Kubrick films. And I'm fairly familiar with it, with his work. But this was the film that just kind of skipped right by me. And granted, you know, you're a little older than me. So that no. might have that might have, uh, you know, some impact on because I would have never have seen this in, in, you know, in the when it came out or, you know, yeah. The, the next 10 years because it just would not have been in my demographic at all and yeah. also you're also a film historian at a certain level I'm a film so guy. you're a yeah. film guy so um should we are is there any closing points you want to make about no no let's or, uh, move okay. on i'm ready to go all right so uh it's so barry linden is definitely an experience um you know there's a lot of aesthetic value to it in in really being able to get into it and i think as don had pointed out if you had the opportunity to see this in a film a classic film um, cinema with a live orchestra playing the, the score, the, the aesthetic value of this film would just skyrocket. So if that, if that does happen, do it, take, you know, I'd even consider doing that if that happened. And I'm sure Don will tell me when that happens again, post COVID, but um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my film uh, was very similar to this film in almost every, no, just joking. Not at all. It, except there was, it was, strongly based on music i picked tommy the film um by uh based off the album the rock opera the who tommy and this is the original uh film from 1975 directed by ken russell and uh, produced by robert stigwood and it's a film that is very much uh you know connected to the um to the original ideas of pete townsend's uh, album from the late 60s, the Tommy uh, album. And then, you know, the the value of the screenplay had gone through several versions. And then when Ken Russell was attached to the project, he working with Pete Townsend, he rewrote the script to kind of give it more of the view that he had of this. And he had never done anything like this and wasn't really familiar and wasn't even a big fan of, of this type of, of music or the style. And uh, they, the, once it was moving forward, they attached a lot of big names to this film. I mean, um, against uh, Roger Daltrey's choice, Roger Daltrey, the lead singer of The Who, actually played the, the title character Tommy, but didn't had no interest in doing this, but was actually 
you know, his management and um, producer, they, you know, he, they, they put him in as the star vehicle and he, he does a good job. Interestingly enough, you, you know, he's definitely, you don't get the rock God who guy that you think of him for most of this movie, because he has to play, you know, a deaf, dumb and blind boy um, for most of the movie. So, you know, it's interesting because it's definitely going against his charismatic default, which is I'm a rock superstar God for most of the movie. He's playing like this kind of, you know, very handicapped uh, boy, a young man. Uh, some of the other characters, um, huge. Oliver Reed plays his father and his mother is Anne Margaret. And uh, they, I thought were just, uh, well, Oliver Reed has just had this manic kind of thing going on all the time. But Anne Margaret, really solid performance. I thought she did a very good job. She's an amazing singer too. I didn't realize how good, you know, Oliver Reed, he's not, I didn't really, you know, he's just a guy who can kind of musically get what he needs to get done. But I thought Ann Margaret was, she's actually a very good singer. Uh, and, and Ken Russell picked her for this role because of, of the ability to sing. You know, that was an important aspect of casting her. And then there were some very uh, famous, um, Eric Clapton is in there. Of course, the other band members of The Who are kind of backing up the songs and, and kind of, uh, you know, playing their instruments in the film. Uh, and but Keith Moon had an actual more of a, a, a authentic role, the drummer of the Who. He actually played. I, I think is it Uncle Ernie? Is it, Uncle Ernie. Yeah, and then he and then he also played um, throughout the film in in this kind of this oh, uh, yeah. very Keith Moon character. Um, CD ugly people. Yeah, and then um, and then uh, the Acid Queen was Tina Turner. Who, she oh, she yeah. was amazing. Very short part, but man, it was she was man. The energy that that woman has is, is incredible. She at that age, uh, she was you know this is a this is pre superstar Tina Turner of the eighties, but um, she was very good. And then Elton John played the pinball wizard, and I thought he did a very good job as well in the in that pinball wizard. Um, style the whole movie is very kind of filmed psychedelically you know there's a lot of themes about uh you know the ideas of jesus and and religion and and cultism the occult and you know this turning something good and natural into this kind of money-making evilness most of the film is is just the score of the music you know there's not a huge amount of actual uh character uh dialogue happening in the movie as much as there's just singing of the songs telling the stories as as the movie's kind of weaving through and it's interesting because i felt that watching the film it might have actually if they could have kind of woven more dialogue into the to into the script I thought it actually might have helped the film a little bit more because you have to really like this record, this album, Tommy, because the whole, I mean, the, the move, everything about this film is connected really to that album with a visual. It was almost like a music video of uh, this entire album, like a concept album music video. But I, you know, I did enjoy it. And man, uh, I really enjoyed the ending. I thought the ending was very powerful, the way they did the ending and the lighting um, and the way that they kind of portrayed him um, uh, was, you know, the, his evolution. I, I never quite understood how he got his sight, sound, you know, his ability to speak again or his, his mm. deafness or his, you know, all that stuff, you know, he miraculously becomes a normal human being. She smashed, she smashed the mirror. Is that what it was? Yeah, the mirror had him entranced and 
because you know they told him you didn't see it, you didn't hear it, you'll never say anything to anybody ever in your life. And and so when when his parents said, told him you never saw it, then he froze, and then the only thing he could see was himself. And then somehow, I mean, it's not you know very clearly and exact, yeah, but yeah. he stared in the mirror, and as soon as the mirror was smashed, then he was released from his trance. Oh, okay, okay. Now I you know that that part I didn't really. Cat. Yeah. Because I mean, I think you have to. It's, this is the type of film that if you want to follow the story, you got to watch it a couple times. I think. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, that's I. I kind of got out of it because I did pick this film, but as I watched this film, you know, I realized it's not necessarily the style of film that I would normally like. I never go to a Broadway musical. You know, I'm not a big Broadway musical fan, and this is essentially a musical film. You know, and so I was. I appreciated aspects of the film and I appreciated how they put this together. And it did, it does seem very connected to that time in regards to um, purposeful, I believe, but the way, you know, the, the sets were built and the, and the, and the styles of how things were done. I liked that they used, you know, very authentic people in the, as extras and they used very, you know, the, I guess it was filmed mostly in Portsmouth. Is that right? Um, yeah. And, and a lot on, on set too. Yeah. Yeah. It was filled in parts, but yeah. But. And so I, I, I thought, you know, I liked how they used the, the style, but man, it, it gave you a sense that there was some twisted warped stuff going on in England post-World War II, you know, because this thing came out of these, the, the ideas of these people and how it came up, came about. And it just really said to me, wow, I wonder how impacted that society was because, you know, you get such a dichotomy of like, you know, uptight, British, you know, Thatcherist, Thatcherism was about to pop up on the radar, you know, and, 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 and then you get this other side of like this psychedelic trippy, you know, I guess the Beatles and the Stones and the who all came out of this other way off movement that had nothing to do, and they didn't fit into that society. And then commercially, they became so successful that, you know, they could, these types, this film was created based on, off their, you know, their whole experiences uh, this countercultural experience of England in the '60s, and yeah. and I think the film kind of captured the energy and the value of that time in how it kind of promoted the sense of of the origins of that film. Like you know, you almost got the you almost got the the okay. Let's just think of some crazy storyline experiences and put it all together and then and then put some music to it and then that's going to be almost like a performing arts piece you know what i mean like it was like yeah. a, so i liked it and i didn't like it and i liked it and i didn't like it the like the hang gliding thing was really weird too you know that was kind of like a jesus resurrection thing almost interesting and it's funny because i read roger daltrey's biography that came out this year or, or autobiography that came out in the last year or two and um and he talks about that hang gliding thing and how he had no experience in hang gliding and he's, he's like yeah let's just do it <laughs> he, he like just he just kind of went with him it's like you know he could not wearing a helmet not you know just no didn't have seem like a lot of safety precautions or like yeah just just hang glide you know yeah. Well, it's funny when you hear yeah. Ken Russell talk about this film because Ken Russell was a pretty stylized <clears throat> um, avant-garde filmmaker. He made a film right after this called Listomania, also starring Roger Daltrey. And it's about, you know, Liszt, the uh, 18th century or maybe yeah, 19th Franz, century. Franz Liszt. Yeah, and it's like, and it's like really? I mean, Daltrey's playing Liszt and it's even more stylized. And then he made a film shortly after that called Altered States. Um, and it was about people going into, um, you know, those chambers where you, you know, your uh, sensory chambers where you, and then this guy would 
transformed. You, you go into like, you find your DNA roots and you transform it into some, you know, werewolf kind of thing. And it was, it was popular, but it was once again, really stylized. Um, and that's, that was the style of film he made it just like, as you said, it's like really way ahead of its time in terms of music video, uh, especially like the acid queen. There's this great scene where they're putting Tommy into this really kind of modern iron maiden instead of like spikes, yeah. it's all hypodermic needles. And, and then it opens and closes many times. And then we see skeletons we see, you know, Tommy like laughing or smiling maniacally and, and there's no real story. And we're like, we're thinking, oh, she's the acid queen. So she's just giving him crazy drugs. But, and then in the end, he just sort of waters off and then she's still going crazy and say, give me him right. one more night. And um, yeah, it's like no she's, she's like an acid based prostitute or something, you know, it's, yeah. it's very. <laughs> yeah. And the other one that's interesting, you didn't, you didn't mention uh, Jack Nicholson's oh, another yeah, character in this. Yeah. And uh, his scene's pretty low key. I think he was only there for a couple of days and he's this doctor that, figures out like we can't he can hear and and see you but he's got to figure it out and they eventually figure to smash the mirror and i know that townsend didn't like the counts the the casting of of him and a couple of others because they weren't good singers he townsend really right. wanted really good singers he was okay with margaret and margaret and actually he wanted stevie wonder for pin uh, for pinball wizard and I, I don't think he was too upset in the end because obviously elton john does a phenomenally good job in that scene. I mean, he, yeah. he's great with the crazy glasses, the outfits and, you know, and those, that scene is so well shot. And he just, yeah. and in the end he's, he falls down, he's wearing these boots that are like 40 feet high and yeah, yeah. he falls down and they carry him out. And it's yeah, because I also, I read Mick Jagger also for the Acid Queen. They were looking at Mick Jagger for the Acid Queen, but he was yeah. requiring, you know, he wanted three of his songs in there. So they're like, no, you know, so yeah, that's not gonna happen. Yeah, that's not gonna happen, you know. No. So, but yeah, the 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 Jack Nicholson thing too was I think Ken Russell's uh, direction in regards to Jack Nicholson was yeah, be just be Jack Nicholson. That was <laughs> that was like you know they just wanted that Jack Nicholson energy for that moment in the scenes, you know, which yeah. you know he did very well. He was definitely Jack Nicholson in the you know. He sure was. Yeah. You know? And the other scene I really want to point out, and I remember I saw this in the theater as well, is of course Anne Margaret watching TV. And then we have oh, champagne, no. Uh, baked uh, beans. Well, first of all, it's the suds from this, the washing machine and then it transforms into baked beans. But it's an incredibly sexual scene where, you know, Mark uh, and Margaret is yeah. wearing a very tight, almost see-through dress. And and then she's writhing around on this on this couch with this really long Bedroom, uh, pillow that's quite phallic. and. And she's and then she's in the soaps the suds first of all it's like oh it's kind of like a wet t-shirt thing but then she's just covered in muck and baked beans yeah. and her hair is just soaked in it and apparently she injured herself there's the tv explodes and she got cut on glass yeah and, yeah but that scene it, you know as a kid i you know i was just like i don't <laughs> it was amazing because it's just that kind of stuff was really ahead of its time oh, it was yeah, a very yeah. surprising scene to see in a it was a, a basic a pg film and that, that, I mean, I didn't break any rules, but it, it was uh, beyond PG for me as a kid. That's oh, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Anne Margaret, she was, you know, she was always considered a very sexual oh, star, yeah. too, you know. I mean, um, and then, they, you know, when we look at the, the, the penultimate scene or the ultimate scene where we, we see the, you know, the whole uh, kind of amusement park con job of people lined up and getting overcharged for the, yeah. the, the accessories and then coming into the, 
it was almost like the the land of you know the the emerald city you know it's almost like they took that vibe because they had to go through the little door into the into the inside you know they had to crawl through that door and and you know the um keith keith uh moon was kind of like the uh the Wizard of Oz on his little piano thing that was driving around. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it had a very kind of Wizard of Oz Emerald City vibe. And then when you go yeah. inside and everything's not, you know, they're, oh, you know, we're just going to put on your blindfolded earmuff cork thing so yeah. that, you know, you're deaf, dumb, and blind, and then play some pinball and then all your problems are going to be solved. And everybody's like, That's the you're, answer. Conning. you're conning us. You're conning yeah. us. You yeah. know, and then it just, you know, the, the inmates riot. And, uh, yeah, you know, and well, so th- it got really trippy at that point. I thought. <laughs> One interesting thing in terms of like, you know, I was a big Who fan. And in terms of comparing the music, I would say Acid Queen and Pinball Wizard are pretty, you know, and actually the Eric Clapton song, Eyesight to the Blind is pretty good. But basically the rest of the album, I mean, I was just a huge Who fan. And I'm like, what do they do to this album? It's because it kind of made it pretty pop. But one of the things they transformed in the story is the film is actually the, the rock opera is initially based around World War One, and so but then they moved it all up to World War Two because they wanted that '70s you know glam rock kind of thing. So they just moved everything ahead, like they just went one word or the other. Um, and they also switched the story where uh, in the in the in the rock opera it's the parents that kill. The lover that she takes while he's missing an action in the film they change it to the lover and the and the wife killing the husband coming home from war which is such a twist um in the story um i guess it makes it more modern and people are less uh faithful to each other or something so any who fans would be kind of shocked by those major changes in the in the script yeah and i you know and i really liked my favorite song was probably the, the closing song i really liked Oh, it's great. Yeah, that We're they did that. I it. thought that that was the best blending of the music to the visuals of the of the film. I mean, everything there was a lot of literal blending with Pinball Wizard and yeah, you know, all that stuff. But I thought uh, that it was a great closing. I thought the ending was very powerful. I mean, it very really operatic. Left, yeah, it very. It left you with, and then it just the whole Jesus thing was just yep. like, you know, boom. And like at some point, he even jumps into the water. I think. And, starts swimming and then he's swimming up some mountain climbing up a mountain or then he was swimming in some more streams and you yeah, know yeah. it's like i'm going to the top of the you know yeah. mount sinai kind of vibe you know yeah. so i you know I, it, it was an enjoyable movie um as i had not really seen it before and so i had picked it just because i wanted to experience it and you know i'm glad i saw it but yeah, i think you're right in in you know seeing it in a theater aesthetically would have been a lot more powerful i think and that's another film uh, that they've done live in the theater. Well, the film and then live orchestra, you know, live band. Right. And that'd be that'd be a great experience as well. Yeah, and I think they they had it on. He they did it a Broadway too. I think Tommy was on Broadway. Tommy and Quadrophenia, maybe. Yeah, yeah. because uh, I was talking to some family members. They said they saw it on Broadway. That they saw the yeah. Tommy. So I yeah. think it was recent probably in the last 10 years, probably. Yeah. Is that possible? So, you know, overall, I think these were good movies to conclude with. They were very powerful in their own ways, I think. Um, very different. Uh, one had, uh, you know, kind of a, a low-fi power to it, and the other one was a very high-fi power to it, you know, in regards to the, the depth and authenticity of the movies. They were, you know, they, they had some connections in, 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 in very weird ways, 
because uh, you know there was some intensity in very different levels you know so i liked um that we picked these two and they both had a lot of music connected to them so i thought that was that was nice but we've come to the end of this series and uh but it's not over we are going to we are going to move on we don't know where we're going to move on to but in our next um podcast you will hear about our new investigation and our new series and where we're going to go after that. Maybe so we figure it out. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to figure it out first. Yeah. But uh, but you you'll be along for the ride when, once we get to that next podcast. Yeah. So I want to thank our listener tapping into our our podcast. Maybe it's listeners by now. I hope. But uh, it's been really enjoyable, Don, doing this series with you. And I'm looking yeah. forward to what we're what our next choices are going to be. Onward and upward. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to Cinema Around the Corner, 1965 to 1975. And we will be back again soon. Take care.